The title of this morning's message is, Is Your Face Toward Me? This morning, I want to talk to you about what it means for us to have God's face turned toward us and how God's face came to be turned toward us and why we do not need to fear that his face will ever be turned away from us. I took the title of this message from a story I heard a long time ago. It came from a very famous minister, Adrian Rogers, who has long since gone on home to be with the Lord. Most of you have heard it before, though I don't believe I've ever used it in a message. I have told it several times over the years. And it appears that Adrian used it more than once, <laughs> and he adjusted it for whatever the message he was ministering. It was his creation as far as I know, so he could change it however he pleased. So it will be a little different from what I have told before. I found a short version of it in some of his sermon notes online, and I've incorporated those into the original story as well. I just want to give credit where credit is due. The story begins with the death of a dearly loved wife and mother. Her husband and daughter attended the funeral, as you would expect. All the while, the husband trying hard to be strong for his little girl. After the funeral, a family member offered to take the little girl home with them so that he could be alone for a while. But he simply stated that life without her mother was going to be the new normal, and he thought it best that they learn together how to live without her. Once they were home, they had dinner, and then they went to bed. This was the first night the little girl would spend apart from her mother, and she felt so alone in the darkness. So she sought out her daddy's bed. Standing at the doorway, she said, Daddy, can I sleep with you tonight? And her daddy said, Sure, honey, you can sleep with me tonight. So she climbed in bed and cuddled up to her daddy. Still unable to sleep, the little girl said, Daddy, sure is dark in here. I don't believe I've ever seen it so dark. And he replied, I don't believe I've ever seen it so dark either. She said, Daddy, I can't see you. He said, I know, honey, but I'm here. Then she said, Daddy, is your face toward me? And he responded, Yes, my darling, my face is toward you. Daddy, she said, you still love me through the dark, don't you? And her daddy replied, yes, sweetheart. Daddy still loves you through the dark. Thank you, daddy. And the little girl drifted off to sleep in the arms of her father. Soon after, her daddy slipped out of bed and onto his knees, and he prayed. Heavenly Father, sure is dark in here. I don't believe I've ever seen it so dark. And his father replied, I know, my son, but I'm here. Father, I can't see your face. Is your face toward me? And his father answered, Yes, my son, my face is toward you. And Father, you still love me through the dark, don't you? 
And his father replied, yes, my son, I still love you through the dark. I love you through the darkest night. And he replied, thank you, father. And then he climbed back into bed and he fell asleep in the arms of his father. I practiced this story a lot so I wouldn't cry. <laughs> Didn't work. <laughs> this story always makes me cry. And I think it's because I too have experienced what felt like the darkest of nights. When I didn't feel like God's face was toward me. When I didn't feel like God was with me. And when I didn't feel like God was loving me through my darkest night. But the truth is, my darkest nights ended very much like the man's in this story. With the Father speaking to my heart, the truth of his unconditional love for me, his unconditional acceptance of me, and his unconditional presence with me and in me. Not all things that happen to us are good, <laughs> but our Father promises that he is able and willing to turn all things for our good. That doesn't mean that bad things suddenly become good. <laughs> it just means that our Father is able to bring forth beauty from ashes. He is able to restore what the locusts have eaten. He is able to vindicate us in the eyes of others. And he is able to bring us through our darkest night victoriously. I think this story can easily touch our hearts because we have all experienced the darkness of not being able to see God or feel God during times of great pain, great loss, great lack, continuing sickness, or even in the finality of death. And one of the things that makes the darkness so dark is that the enemy will tell us that our Father has surely abandoned us. He has turned his face away, and he doesn't care about our suffering, and he's not even doing anything to change it. Satan will also provide questions to torment us. Why did he even let this bad thing happen? Is this punishment for my sins? Do I deserve this? God, are you mad at me? These are the kinds of lies Satan will put into our minds in an effort to make us miserable <laughs> and doubtful. He wants us to doubt our Father's faithfulness and goodness so that we will continue to be miserable and powerless. Joyce Meyer used to say, you can be pitiful or you can be powerful, but you can't be both at the same time. <laughs> and it's true. Because to be powerful, we need only to remember who we are in Christ Jesus and who our Father is and all that he has accomplished through the finished works of Jesus. And when we do this, faith arises out of the truth in our hearts and then we can overcome in our situations of darkness and sorrow. But to be pitiful, all we have to do is agree with the lies of the enemy. And it's way too easy. <laughs> we let him talk us out of what our Father has already provided just because of how we feel. We can just continue to whine and cry and complain, and nothing will change. <laughs> There's no faith in whining. <laughs> It doesn't even make us feel better. <laughs> but when we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and we hear his word to us, 
and his word about us and his word for us, we can find our peace and truly rest knowing he's holding us even when we don't have the strength to hold on to him. So what does it mean that God's face is toward us? This concept is found in the Old Testament, Aaronic blessing, which is found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. Here, God tells Moses that the priests are to bless the Israelites with this particular blessing. I have it for you in the literal standard version. I like it because it uses God's name rather than God's title. Also, to invoke a blessing on the congregation, it meant to ask God to bless or to speak good things over someone in causing blessing, God's empowerment, to be released on their behalf and bring them happiness. Blessing and happiness go hand in hand. So when God says he will bless someone, he means he will empower them to prosper in a specific area that will bring them happiness. This is good news. We like happiness. <laughs> Again, beginning in verse 22 of Numbers chapter 6. And Yahweh speaks to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you bless the sons of Israel, saying to them, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh is the up-close-and-personal, covenant-keeping God name. They didn't use the word Elohim. Elohim is creator God. It's far away God. <laughs> That's how they thought of God, far away. But no, he said, no, I am the up-close-and-personal, covenant-keeping God, and my name is Yahweh. You get to call me by my name. <laughs> he is the one who empowers us to prosper. That's what it means to be blessed, empowered to prosper. And he is the one who will guard us and protect us as we walk in his ways. He even guards us and protects us when we walk in our own ways, but it doesn't usually work out real well. <laughs> Verse 25. Yahweh cause his face to shine on you and favor you. As you can see, I've added the word toward in this verse, and that's because the Hebrew word literally translates as towards. But it sounds better in English if you say on. <laughs> it shines on us. It shines toward us. It's literally your face shines toward us. To have God's face or presence shine on us is to have a revelation of who God is as Yahweh, the up-close and personal covenant-keeping God. And it is the idea of him smiling on us with delight which results in him displaying his favor, which is his grace, his absolutely free loving kindness. I looked up the word favor in an online dictionary and it said this, favor is an act of kindness beyond what is due or usual. In other words, it's preferential treatment. <laughs> we have preferential treatment. Our Heavenly Father favors us and shows us preferential treatment, his extravagant loving kindness. Verse 26. Yahweh lift up his countenance on you or toward you and appoint for you peace. The word translated as countenance is the exact same word used in the previous verse as face. And it represents God's presence, God's countenance. The idea is supposed to paint for us is that you see God arise and his whole being, not just his little face, his whole being shines on you. 
it denotes that he is specifically interested in our lives and what's going on in them. He takes great interest. And because he is especially and specifically interested in our life, he has appointed that we should live in peace, which, according to the Strong's Concordance, includes that which makes us safe. The word for peace here and throughout the Old Testament is shalom. The bottom line is it means safe. Safe in your finances, safe in your relationships, safe where you live, safe where you work, safe. <laughs> and it includes the idea of being, because you're safe, you're well, you're happy, you're friendly, you have health, prosperity, and peace. Sounds like the prosperity gospel to me. Health, prosperity, and peace. This is God's desire that we should live in his shalom, his peace, that we have his favor, we have good health, we have completeness. So as such as to, as to be peaceable and prosperous at rest and safe. This is our Father's desire for his people, both under the old covenant and under the new. He actually does want us to be happy, healthy, and prosperous. I know some people don't like that. <laughs> I don't know why they don't like that, but they don't. <laughs> but just because that is his desire for us, that does not mean that bad things won't happen in our lives or that everything will just fall into our laps. It means our Heavenly Father empowers us to prosper inwardly and spiritually and then to experience outwardly by walking in his grace and power and overcoming in all of our difficult situations. And then the last verse, verse 27. And they have put my name on the sons of Israel, and I bless them. Here, Israel is in covenant relationship with God, so she bears his name, as a covenant partner and wife should. And she cannot bear his name and not be blessed. That would make God look bad. <laughs> what kind of husband do you got? <laughs> we are blessed, which is to be empowered to prosper and to be made happy. I also like that this translation uses the correct verb tense. Usually our translators put everything in the future. I will bless. No, that's not what it says. He says, I bless right here, right now, it's who I am, and it's what I do. <laughs> you bear my name. <laughs> You're blessed. So, as it was with them, so it is with us. We are already blessed. We are already empowered to prosper and to be made happy. Our Father has already blessed us or empowered us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Our Father has not withheld any good thing from us. It's all been granted. It means he's already said yes. All the promises of God are yes and amen. Yes, and it's finished. Yes, and I already did it. You can believe easier if you know it's already done. <laughs> That's the point. <laughs> now, in the Old Testament, God does speak to a very idolatrous Israel, and he warns her about leaving him as their God and treating him as if he could not see their adulterous ways. Because of Israel's complete abandonment of God, God's presence left the temple. The Israelites could choose to either go into captivity to Babylon, willingly, which they didn't like, or they could stay and fight the Babylonians in their own strength, and thereby go into death 
<laughs> if God is not with you, you're in a world of trouble. <laughs> God refers to this leaving of his temple as hiding his face or hiding his presence from Israel. And we can see this in Isaiah chapter 54. And here, God is speaking to all of Israel, beginning in verse 4. And he says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. In other words, do what I tell you to do. Don't fight with the Babylonians. Let them take you into captivity. You'll be safe there. If you try to fight, you'll die. Don't do that. <laughs> he says, for you will forget the shame of your youth. And that actually refers to the Egyptian captivity. And then he says, and then the reproach of your widowhood, which is the Babylonian captivity, he says, you will remember no more. Why? For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted. And it really it means to relinquish. I deserted you. It means he left the temple. But with great compassion, I will gather you out of captivity. In overflowing anger for a moment, <laughs> I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, but with everlasting love, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This covenant of peace refers to the new covenant that would be instituted through the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, which of course is our Jesus. And this covenant is an everlasting covenant of shalom, an everlasting covenant of peace and wealth and prosperity. Yes, he wants it for us. He wants it for everybody. <laughs> but it doesn't just happen. You have to believe him and trust him and walk with him. In verse 8, it tells us that for just a moment, he was angry. That word moment means wink of an eye. I'm going to be mad at you. Yeah, for how long? <laughs> that long. <laughs> Who was he mad at? Us? No. Israel. Why? Because she abandoned him. He was angry all of the wink of an eye. <laughs> and, and it says he hid his face from Israel. But then in verse 9, it tells us that God will never be angry with us. Not even the length of a wink of an eye. He will never be angry with us. And if he's never going to be angry with us, that means he'll never hide his face from us. Never. God is not the God of the swivel chair. Do you ever have a kid play on a swivel chair? They swirl all the way one way, and then all the other way, back and forth. <laughs> Most Christians think God has a swivel chair. When you're doing it right, his face is toward you. And when you're doing it wrong, he turns away. And if he turns his face away, it must mean he's mad. In Christ, our Father will never turn his face 
away. So why do so many believers believe that God will turn away from them? Because there are some modern translations that actually say this. <laughs> For example, Isaiah 59.2 in the Living Translation says this. It is your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Not my covenant. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is being lifted out of its historical context as being applied just to Israel, and ministers are trying to apply it to believers today, to new covenant believers. You can't do that. It's a different covenant. And when you mix them, it doesn't work. <laughs> you get nothing. You can't put new wine in old wineskin. Everything gets wrecked. Here, God is talking to people who call themselves by God's name, but who have absolutely no faith in him at all. Israel was completely faithless, no faith. They had long since written God off as if he could not see what they were doing. They completely abandoned him. Now let's look at this verse, Isaiah 59, in its context. We're going to read 1, 2, and 3. Context is always a really good idea. I'm going to read it in the King James. This is what it says before. <laughs> Behold, look, understand, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Is the problem with God? <laughs> hmm, doesn't sound like it. <laughs> God is willing and able to extend his saving arm, and he is willing to hear and answer their prayers. He says so right here. God's face was still toward them. The problem was their face was not toward God. Verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. First of all, there is no indication that God turns his face away. None. That's an interpretive device, and it's not good. <laughs> the picture this verse is trying to paint for us is that the sins of Israel were sort of piling up like dirty laundry. <laughs> and they weren't dealing with their sins, so the laundry just kept piling up and piling up, and there was this mountain of dirty laundry, and guess what? They can't see God. <laughs> Why? Because they're not dealing with their sin. And why aren't they dealing with their sin? Because they don't care if they have a good relationship with God or any relationship with God at all. They had abandoned God. The problem was completely on their end. Verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. So basically he's saying here that Israel has become murdering, lying scoundrels. <laughs> but in her pride and stupidity, because that's what pride does, it makes you really stupid, she still expected for God to come to her rescue and fight her battles for her, even though Israel knew that was not how their covenant worked. They had to obey the word of the Lord in order to be blessed, which is to be empowered to prosper and to be made happy. And they would not. They refused to do the laundry. 
And that was exactly what Jesus said about the Jews of his day. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus says this. This is in the basic English Bible. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, putting to death the prophets and stoning those who are sent to her. Again and again, I would have taken your children to myself as a bird takes her young ones under her wings. And you would not. The Israelites chose the darkness on purpose over and over and over. It was never that God was turning away his face from Israel. It was that Israel was always turning her face away from God. So, if God would not turn his face away from the disobedient and stubborn Israel, then why would he turn his face away from Jesus on the cross when Jesus was only there because he was being obedient to the Father's will? We can see this obedience in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, which says this, And being found in fashion as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The death of the cross was a shameful and publicly humiliating death. It publicly declared that the one crucified was the scum of the earth. They were the worst of the worst. They were the most dangerous of criminals. And they wouldn't have been crucified unless they truly deserved it. But of course, in Jesus' case, it was completely unjust. Jesus was not guilty of the crimes of treason or blasphemy, even though that's exactly what the Jews accused him of in order to get him crucified. And even though Jesus' crucifixion was actually legally wrong and unjust, Jesus submitted himself to it because he knew it was the Father's will and he trusted that his Father knew what he was doing. That's what true obedience is. Hearing and heeding the voice of our Father. Not because we're afraid he'll turn his face away if we don't, but because we know his face is already turned toward us in unconditional love and acceptance. I personally do not like the word obedience. You can be obedient on the outside and not on the inside. <laughs> so I don't like that word. <laughs> so I don't like this word, but not because I don't want to obey. It's because true obedience is not about doing a law or a commandment or not doing certain things. True obedience is about believing and trusting and the one who is leading and guiding us into all truth, even when it's very dark, and even when we are unjustly mistreated. Jesus knew the Father's plan, and he was in complete agreement with the Father and the Holy Spirit as to how they together would redeem all of mankind out of the slave market of sin and death. But Jesus never died before. <laughs> and going into death with the sin of the whole world on your back, probably could have been more than just a little scary. <laughs> so Jesus had to step into the darkness on purpose in faith, not being able to see with his physical eyes what was just beyond the doorway of death. He entrusted himself to his Father's goodness and faithfulness and truthfulness. He believed the Father would raise him physically on the third day. And of course, that's exactly what he did. The Father never turned his face away from the Son, in spite of what many popular Christian songs say. Even one of our songs has that line, and I go, oh, I wish I could change it. <laughs> the Father turned his face away. No, no. 
The father never turned his face away. Now, you might be thinking, what about what Jesus himself said from the cross? Didn't Jesus say that God had abandoned or forsaken him? And didn't God forsake Jesus so they wouldn't have to abandon or forsake us? Isn't that the way it works? No. <laughs> no, that's not the way it works. <laughs> I do not believe that our Heavenly Father has ever abandoned anyone. And especially not his one and only unique son, the Messiah. Jesus came to pay the purchase price for our redemption. And that price was the shedding of his own precious blood. Jesus was like the innocent goat from the Day of Atonement, whose shed blood was taken into the Holy of Holies on the behalf of the guilty. And Jesus was also like the scapegoat, who publicly carried the guilt and shame of the whole world into the wilderness and death. The purchase price did not include being abandoned by his father. It also did not include suffering in hell for three days. These are some of the traditions that have grown in popularity over the years, but they cannot be true if everything Jesus said from the cross is true. In John chapter 19, beginning with verse 28, and after Jesus had been on the cross for six hours, it says this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Jesus said that everything that needed to be done for the salvation of mankind had already been accomplished as of that moment. <laughs> and all of the prophecies had been fulfilled. So if that's true, and I believe it is, then we cannot add suffering in hell for three days to his shed blood. It wasn't his blood plus abandonment plus hell. No, one price, blood. Our salvation is purchased through his blood and only through his blood. Hebrews 13, 20 says this, Now the God of peace, God of shalom, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Ephesians 1, 7, In whom we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Our salvation is all about his blood. We can't add anything to it. It's like our salvation. We can't add anything to Jesus' blood. <laughs> no suffering in hell can be added to what Jesus did. He didn't need to suffer in hell. He was giving his blood so that no one had to go to hell. Also, Jesus said to the repentant thief on the cross next to him, the man in the middle said, <laughs> Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. They were both going to paradise that day. There was no side trip to hell. <laughs> because the payment for salvation was paid in full. Absolutely nothing else could be added to the cross. Not hell and certainly not abandonment. In Luke 23, we find the last few moments before Jesus' death, beginning in verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour. And there was a darkness over the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, 
and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. I love that. Supernatural, physical evidence. Verse 46, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Jesus knew his father, and he knew his father's plan. And in accordance with that plan, Jesus gave up the ghost. In other words, he let go of his physical body and stepped into the arms of his father. Jesus knew in his heart that he was safe and that his father never, not even for the wink of an eye, turned his face away. In John chapter 16, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus says to his disciples, 1632, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. So if Jesus makes the point that he is not alone in this hour, then he's not alone. <laughs> he's not abandoned. <laughs> So then why did he cry out from the cross? Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, scholars are not in agreement as to why Jesus said this. You can find both sides of the argument. Many try to explain it as Jesus just expressing how he felt. They say in his humanity, he felt like God had turned his face away. I suppose that could be true. We don't know for sure, but I don't believe it. <laughs> you see, many believers have embraced the concept that God cannot look upon sin, which is why he had to turn his face away, right? Wrong. <laughs> if you think about it, it's a really dumb thing to believe. God had a whole world full of sinners who were constantly sinning. So where could he look and not see sin? Nowhere. <laughs> he was very aware of everything. He can't look on sin. It doesn't intimidate him. It doesn't threaten him. He's not the least bit bothered by it. He's bothered that it hurts his kids. That's what he doesn't like. That's why he sent Jesus to deal with the power of sin and death, because sin was everywhere. <laughs> but God is not intimidated or threatened by sin. He just wants it destroyed. Sin never made Jesus turn away from anybody, ever. Not from the woman caught in adultery. Not from the woman at the well. Not from the crime boss of Jericho named Zacchaeus. Not from the cranky religious leaders. Not from the lepers who were considered cursed. And not even from the man who betrayed him with a kiss. Nothing could make Jesus turn his face away from those who were loved by his father. And nothing could make his father turn his face away from his dearly loved son. Jesus did not become sinful. He was always God in his nature and his spirit. His blood was not tainted with sin, even when he physically carried our sins into death. Our Father condemned sin in the body of Jesus, but he never condemned Jesus. 
That's the point. <laughs> he was still innocent. That's why the father could raise him from the dead because he had no sin of his own. So sin could not keep him in the ground. So if this verse isn't about how Jesus was feeling, then what is it about? I believe that Jesus is simply quoting the first verse of Psalm 22, which says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Most of the Jews present that day would have been able to quote the rest of that song. And that was probably the reason Jesus quoted it. So that those who would bring it to mind would find that in Psalm 22 was actually being lived out right in front of them. It was another sign. Everything from the piercing of his hands to the casting of lots for his garments. This was prophecy being fulfilled right in front of them. It should have at least caused them to think, who is this man who is demonstrating the prayer of King David? Could he actually be the king of the Jews? Like the sign above his head says? It was meant to make them think. It was a sign pointing them to his true identity, even to the last. Now, when I was thinking about this, I thought, maybe Jesus was quoting this psalm for himself as well, not just for them. This is just speculation. A little imagination. Just go with me here. <laughs> what if Jesus was having a conversation with his father that went something like this? Abba, Father, it's very dark in here. Abba, Father, I don't believe I've ever seen it so dark. Abba, Father, I can't see your face. Abba, is your face toward me? And then Psalm 22 comes into his mind and begins to work through it the piercing of his hands and feet, the casting of lots for my garments, all of my bones out of joint. And then finally, it comes to mind. Verse 24. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. It was then when Jesus speaks his last Abba, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Our Father and our Jesus know what it's like to live and to love through the darkest of nights. And our Father knows that we can't always see exactly how we're going to make it through our dark night. And so he speaks to our hearts. Yes, my child, it is dark. And sometimes it's very dark. But I am, the I am is right here. And I am your Abba. I am your Father. And my face is toward you. I am currently, present tense, loving you and strengthening you and taking care of you. 
You can rest in my love and my goodness because I am for you and not against you. I have blessed you and my face shines upon you with joy and delight. The darkness may come, but the darkness cannot stay because my face is toward you. There will eventually, one day, be an end to all dark nights. But until then, we need to remember that nothing, absolutely nothing, can make our Father or our Jesus turn their face away from us. Jesus bore the sin of the whole world, and not even the sin of all mankind could make his Father turn his face away. So there's nothing we can do, nothing we can do, that would cause our Father or our Jesus to turn away from us. So like the man in the original story, we can come to our Father, the God of all comfort, and he will speak to our hearts, and he will give us rest. Amen. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father God, that when we can't see and we can't feel and nothing's going right, you are the I am. You are our power and our strength and our hope and our joy and our delight. You are our life. You are the bread and the wine. You are everything that we need. And we thank you, Father God, we never have to believe the lie that you turn your face away. We never have to believe the lie that, that you don't care or that you're mad. We never have to believe the lies because your word speaks very loudly and very clearly that nothing we can do can cause us to make you leave us. We thank you, Father God. We ask that you would cause the, the whole world to know that they are not abandoned, that they have a Father in heaven who is even now reaching out and calling them home. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.